their sacrificial actions and affirming words, our mothers have had a profound and perpetual impact on our lives. And I sincerely hope that uh, you will hear many encouraging words this weekend, even if sometimes they're a little peculiar, like the little girl who obviously had been influenced by a TV commercial and simply said, Mom, I love you so much. You're so tender, moist, and flaky. But they say it's the thought that counts. So kids of all ages, honor your mothers today and every day. Father, we thank you so much for um, the day that we can set aside to honor our mothers. And I think especially today about those women who've had abortions, who may be overcome by guilt, that somehow, somewhere, that they would discover a Heavenly Father who loves them, who can forgive them, and who can make all things new. Lord, we pray for those who uh, are in that situation they would find hope in Jesus Christ. Because we, we have found hope and great encouragement. And we seek again to experience that today as we pray in your great name. Amen. So this pandemic has seemed a lot like an apocalyptic science fiction movie like Maze Runner. Don't get caught going against the flow in the one-way grocery store aisle. Like the Hunger Games. They don't have any yeast or split pea soup or sauerkraut or pfeffer. Or like the Walking Dead. Even going for a stroll through the neighborhood could be hazardous to your health. And so that's why there were all these restrictions. Restrictions that affected businesses and restaurants, churches, cinemas, hair salons, gyms, arenas, even tattoo parlors. There were restrictions on almost everything except our vocabulary. The pandemic have made, may have put severe limits on our movements, but not on our mouths. In fact, there was probably more verbosity than ever before. And so much of it was negative. In the past 12 months, we've heard a lot of angry words and fearful words, discouraging words, accusing words, unkind words. It seems that right now there's haters everywhere and everybody is upset with somebody. Well, I think it's time for some good news especially words of encouragement. And that's what this series is all about. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 says, the, word, or the mouth of the righteous is like a fountain of life. Chapter 16, verse 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And that brings us to the honeycomb kid, the crown prince Jonathan first in line to the throne. 
because he was an excellent practitioner of encouragement and good news. And his best friend David was often the beneficiary. Last week we saw how David and Jonathan's friendship began as a covenant before God. Now in the meantime, David has become Jonathan's brother-in-law when he married his sister, Saul's daughter, Michael. But that has sort of made life a lot more complicated because this was a dysfunctional family in many ways. King Saul was so intimidated by David's reputation that he put a hit on his own son-in-law. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. David had simply become a victim of his own success. So King Saul made him public enemy number one. This put the crown prince in, a, in the middle of a very dangerous situation. David, the outlaw, is his best friend. But his father is like the chief of police. Talk about a dilemma. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. Jonathan could clearly see that David had God's anointing. And he also realized that his father was being more and more influenced by the powers and principalities of darkness. And it's ironic because Saul also recognized that the Lord was with David. In chapter 18, verses 28 to 29, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So Jonathan was the only one in a position to make sure that David was not a casualty of the king's paranoia. But it was a great risk. Not only was Jonathan committing treason by aiding an enemy of the state, but he was also dishonoring his father. And that's, that's part of God's top ten list. Number five, honor your father and your mother. But that's provided you don't break law number one, two, and three in the process. Only our loyalty to God is absolute. If honoring our Father would have us commit sin, then we have to honor God instead. So Jonathan realized that God was using him to protect David from his father. In chapter 19, verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hand when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan confronted his father, asked him not to sin, and encouraged him to do the right thing. In verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. The way that Jonathan spoke to his father is a good example 
of how to overcome evil with good. Jonathan was respectful, but also able to admonish and administer a godly rebuke. And that took a lot of courage. One of the biggest challenges in a time of uh, crisis and conflict is to encourage people to do the right thing. Not the popular thing, not the politically correct thing, not even the progressive thing, but to do the right thing. That takes courage. Saul's troubled psyche was kind of a personification of the turbulent times in which we live when it seems like our society is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And the only remedy for that is something we used to call righteousness. Instead of denunciation and conspiracy theories and death threats and condemnation, we need courageous people who will boldly proclaim the way of righteousness and invite others to turn in that direction. In times like these, effective encouragement requires courage. And fortunately, that's not an optional extra or an add-on. Courage comes as standard equipment. It's already integrated and installed because the word is encouragement. And this is what makes it different from flattery because flattery requires no courage. Flattery is telling people what they want to hear, whether it's true or not. And often it's overinflated with false praise. In business, yes men are fluent in flattery and will agree with everything their boss says. So really, they don't, they're not part of a business office, they're more part of a massage parlor where the employees will massage their manager's ego. By contrast, encouragement requires courage enough to confront. I respect you, but I have to respectfully disagree with this course of action. You're better than that. Please do the right thing. So Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And they lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly. Things did return to normal for a while. It was all good until Saul's suspicious mind flared up again. Welcome to another episode of The Fugitive. Fortunately, David had backup. Jonathan had his back. Chapter 20, verse 1, Then David fled and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan did not believe Saul was going to do this because Saul had promised. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 
You see, Jonathan could have abandoned David at this point. I mean, this guy's always getting into trouble. It's like the classic Laurel and Hardy movies. Well, Stanley, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into. With David, there's too much drama. He's just so high maintenance. I don't have time for this. I'm probably going to end up as collateral damage. But Jonathan was not thinking about himself. It didn't matter that this was all very inconvenient, not to mention dangerous. Jonathan realized that his purpose in life was to encourage his friend and to help him. So in verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. But this was very risky business. Jonathan, you're collaborating with the enemy. Sooner or later, Saul's going to find out. Verse 30, sure enough, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. Previously, Saul had hurled a spear at David. Now he's hurling spears at Jonathan. He doesn't care about anything else except killing David. That's the only thing that matters to him. And anybody who gets in the way is in trouble. So Jonathan had to warn David that the situation had deteriorated, that his life was still in danger, and that this time there would be no ceasefire. Verse 41, David got up and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Now, don't read anything into this. This is just a bromance. A bromance is defined as a very close and intimate relationship between two men that has absolutely no sexual component. And we know that men kissing men and women kissing women is a customary greeting in many cultures. The Canadian equivalent would be a, a high five and 75 cents on the dollar. In 2017, we were sitting in a city square in Barcelona, and we were absolutely enjoying watching the Catalonians interact with each other because there's a lot, of, lot more physical affection in that culture. And Maria, the same thing is true of all the Latin countries. Canadians are so icy cold by, by comparison to what happens in some of these countries. We love to see these couples who would meet and the wives would embrace and kiss each other on the mouth. It was just really heartwarming to see that. 
That's what the early church was like. Five times in Paul's letter, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We find that in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 Peter 5. Now, we know that social distancing is necessary right now. But this is foreign to Christian fellowship. You know, because Christian fellowship has always been a contact sport. Verse 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is a witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. It was just too dangerous for David to keep meeting with Jonathan. Saul would eventually find out where he was hiding. They had to go their separate ways. But they did meet one last time. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, beginning at verse 15. While David was at Horesh, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in the Lord. This was the last meeting between these friends. And once again, it was an opportunity for Jonathan to encourage his friend. David had been on the run for some time now. He was probably anxious and weary. Even his faith was weakened by stress fractures. So Jonathan encouraged him, and it says it helped him find strength in the Lord. That's different than what usually happens. Because these days, there's a big emphasis on personal empowerment. That's a big deal. You can do it. You go, girl. Put on your game face. Yes, we can. There's even a pseudo-Christian version which says, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Well, all of this falls under the general heading of self-sufficiency. That's not true spirituality. People of faith find their sufficiency in God. In Second Chronicles or Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul came to this realization. God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's not like me at all. I don't like any of that stuff. Insults hardship, persecutions, difficulties. But Paul says, I rejoice, I delight in my weaknesses. Our culture discourages weaknesses. We'll do anything to avoid insults. We want as many likes as possible. We take evasive action whenever there's hardship. And above all, we don't want to appear weak or incompetent. But Paul welcomed any circumstance that he could not handle on his own. Because then God's power would be displayed. So Paul boasted about his weaknesses. Because they were opportunities for God to display his strength. 
So Jonathan did not give David a pep talk. Come on, man. Remember who you are. You killed Goliath. You have slain 10,000s. Nobody else could do that. Only you. Because you are the man. Jonathan helped David find strength, not in himself, but in the Lord. And I wouldn't be surprised if the words that Jonathan told him would later appear in some of, as some of the lyrics in David's songs. For example, Psalm 18. The inscription for Psalm 18 indicates that this was written when the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul. So this is what happened at this, the very time that we're talking about here, when Saul was trying to hunt him down and kill him. David wrote this song, and it's very likely that the words he uses in this psalm originally came from Jonathan, who was encouraging him. For example, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and my stronghold. And I'm saved from my enemies, from my foes who were too strong for me. With your help, I can advance against a troop. And with my God, I can scale a wall. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to stand on the heights. The words in this psalm have encouraged God's people for 3,000 years. Those who've read them and believed these words have found strength in the Lord. And it's very possible that it was words like these that Jonathan used to encourage David. Now we go into verse uh, 17 of chapter 23. He, he helped David find strength in God and then said, Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. That has got to be one of the most surprising verses in the Bible. That is shocking. That blows my mind because that just never happens. Not in this universe. This is counter-evolutionary. Jonathan has just disproved the theory of evolution. Because in Darwinianism, it's all about us, survival of the fittest. That was Saul. That was, that's what Saul was all about. That's why David had to die. The kingdom wasn't big enough for the both of us. And that makes sense. That's logical. That's in the DNA of every politician. We have to do whatever is necessary to defeat our rivals. So I'm going to need to get, find some dirt on Hunter Biden. But Jonathan said, you will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. That's unheard of. That's inconceivable. What Jonathan should have said is, when I become king, I'll make you my second in command. David, you're going to be my prime minister. You'll be the fresh prince of Bethlehem. That's what the Pharaoh did with Joseph. When uh, Joseph saved Egypt from an apocalypse, he was promoted. In Genesis uh, chapter 41, this is what happened. The Pharaoh said, you shall be put in charge of my palace 
and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then the Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph tremendous authority, but he still remained on the throne. He didn't abdicate and let Joseph rule as absolute sovereign. Joseph was still number two, because that's as far as any monarch is prepared to go. So this, that this what, what Jonathan's doing here is radical. It's, it's like the, the groom stepping aside and letting the best man have the bride. That's absurd. That would never happen, but that's how radical this is. You are going to be the king, and I will be second in command. You know, Jonathan wasn't just giving up the throne for himself, but also for his son and his descendants. Because in those days, legacy was everything. You wanted to do whatever you could to give your children the best opportunities and the greatest inheritance. A man's descendants were almost like, like his immortality. It's what kept your name alive for generations. Nothing was more important than that. So what Jonathan is doing here, here, he's surrendering everything to David. And he's saying, you will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. You've got these uh, two alpha males, two strong leaders, two dynamic men of God. It's kind of like the Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. I mean, of all the people in Israel to pick as, the, as a best friend, the crown prince chooses the only person who can keep him from the throne. Jonathan had absolutely nothing to gain from David and everything to lose. But Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Jonathan loved David more than he loved the throne. As long as one of us is on the throne, it really doesn't matter who it is. So he was committed to do whatever was necessary to help his best friend succeed, no matter what the cost. Jonathan was so in tune with God that he was willing to step aside. What a blessing to have a friend like that. That's why when Jonathan was later killed in battle, David gave this most touching tribute. In 2 Samuel 1.26, he said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than the love of women. Not even David's relationships with his wives could compare with his friend Jonathan. And you know what Jonathan did for David? 
is what we need to do for the son of David, for Jesus Christ. Because we are in a similar position. Because there is a throne room in our hearts, which really we are entitled to. And more than anything else, we want to occupy the seat of absolute power. Our number one drive is we want to be in control. That's the most important thing. Nobody, nobody tells me what to do. I did it my way. So Jesus, how about if I make you senior minister in charge of eternal security, abundant life, and deliver us from evil? Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Jesus, you can be my wingman. Is that a plan? Well, not exactly. No, here's how it works. Lord Jesus, one of us needs to be on that throne. And I've looked at your resume, and it's become very clear that you can obviously do a much better job than I can. I am unworthy. You alone are worthy. You know, it took me eight years to realize that. As a teenager, for eight years, I was running my life the way I wanted. Nobody told me what to do. I was in control. And things just got worse and worse and worse. Until I reached the point where I said, if I could only find somebody else to take over. Because I'm making a mess of things. And then I remember Jesus Christ. And I realized, he must increase, I must decrease. So I surrender my pride, my reputation, my dreams. I'll step aside. Excuse me, I'll get out of your way. Now that's what you call a plan. Father, we thank you that you were actually willing to occupy the throne in our life. As small and meager and insignificant as it is, we thank you that you are prepared to come into our lives, not only as Savior, but as Lord, realizing that um, there's probably going to be some insurrections, because there have been times when I've wanted to run things, and I thought that maybe I could do a better job after all. But Lord, as we think about who you are, as we realize who we are, we realize that we do need to step aside. We do need to surrender. Because you are the only one who is qualified to reign. And you don't just
just reign as sovereign God. You reign as our closest, best friend. And in that we experience your amazing love and grace. Thank you for for what you offer us. And we just surrender to that. Pray this in Jesus' name.